growing up in the, uh, the 80s and 90s, one of the most iconic movie quotes that I remember as a kid uh, came from Arnold Schwarzenegger. Probably know what it is. Coupled with his Austrian accent, Schwarzenegger is the Terminator states, I'll be back. I'm really bad at voices. That was my best attempt. This quote was the, uh, the 37th ranked movie quote in the American Film Institute's 100 Years of Movie Quotes. So it's pretty, pretty significant. So he says he's going to be back, although he comes back in uh, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. It's a pretty popular movie, very iconic. It's not surprising that they kind of keep this, keep going back to that well, and they made a Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines. Just when you think that he wasn't coming back anymore, he comes back some more in Terminator Genesis, and then again in Terminator Dark Fate. I haven't seen all of those. I think the first three is what I saw. And even though the T-101, right, Arnold Schwarzenegger's character, he's like a cyborg. If you haven't seen the movie, um, it's a classic. Cyborg from the future comes back to assassinate John Connor and all this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, he's, he's outdated and seemingly obsolete, but Schwarzenegger continues to hold on to his word, right? Keeps returning to save the day, and then they keep playing on, you know, I'll be back or she'll be back or there's some, someone will be back in every movie. Now, you know, I'm sure you, you figured out by now, I've said at the beginning what we're talking about this morning, right? We're talking about the return of Jesus Christ. Jesus said he's coming back, and he's faithful to do it. Today, we, we're wrapping up the lengthiest section of the creed. We still got a few weeks to go in the whole creed, but we've been focusing on the last, I think, six weeks, the person and experience of Jesus Christ. Previously, we looked at his past, we looked at his life, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. Last week we touched on the present, what he is doing right now that he is in heaven, advocating for us, interceding on our behalf. This morning now we're going to turn to look at his activity in the future, describing when he'll come again. The way that the creed states it says he will come again to judge the living and the dead. So we're going to look closer at his return at his judgment, and finally the objects of that judgment. And then, as, as usual, I'll try to spend some time at the end um, to figure out how do, how do we live differently? What does that mean for us to consider his return? So as has been our practice, let's recite what we know of the creed together. Uh, let's see, let me find it on here. We'll put the words on the screen. So friends, and we'll receive it, recite, it, recite it out loud if you could with me. So friends, what do you believe? We believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, we believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Wonderful. Uh, hopefully, you know, I, I know this is something, as I've said, that we don't do often, this kind of communal reciting. Um, I think it's been good. Hopefully it's something that you can uh, remember, like the repetition of every week, adding a piece to that, we can remember pieces of this. I remember uh, I grew up in a Presbyterian church, and we had the creed. We said it the, the old way, uh, kind of the more traditional, I try to modernize it a little bit, and uh, still, whenever I go to say, say this version, I always have to read it because I'll just instantly snap back to that old way of, um, 
and I, I can't think of what it is right now off the top of my head, but for instance, you know, he will come again to judge the quick and the dead. You know, I just kind of go back to those things. I'll explain that a little later. But what we see this morning is that the creed affirms that Jesus is coming back, that he will return. Now, I want to look at just a couple of Bible passages that speak to these truths. If you have Bibles and want to follow along, you feel free. I'm going to jump to a couple different ones. Uh, you can always jot them down and look at them on your own leisure as well. We're going to start with Mark 13, verses 32 to 37. And so here in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is speaking about his return, and he says this. He says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeepers to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So Jesus said that he's coming back, but that we don't know the date or the time. Jesus himself explains in this passage that even himself as the Son of God is not privy to the information of precisely that precise date or time, right? That it's the Father's will and decision for when the culmination of all things is going to take place. But what Jesus encourages us to do is to be ready. Three different times in that passage, he gives the command to stay awake, stay alert. Right? What's inferred in this is you don't want to be caught sleeping when the boss returns. So I think it's important that we don't know the day or the hour. Right? Because if they knew the day or the hour when the boss could return, they could grab some shut-eye and say, hey, wake me up, and you know, 15 minutes beforehand, I'll want to comb through my hair and pretend I've been up this whole time. But back in November, when we were going through the Gospel of Luke together as a church, you know, there was a message on the second coming of Jesus. In fact, some of the, some of the last few messages we've had have felt kind of like repeats that we had just done because we looked at uh, the narrative of Jesus and now we're looking at the creed. But we, I, I spent some time when we had that talking about why we shouldn't try to predict the date. And I gave a number of examples of people who insisted uh, they they added the dates together, and they knew when Jesus was coming back, only to have it passed unfulfilled. And in, in, instead of learning a lesson in humility and trying to follow Jesus' advice that, you know, we can't know it, let's just be alert, stay awake, be ready, oftentimes they would double down, creating another date that would come and pass, and then another one, and another one. We saw something similar to this happen this year with the, the heresy that is QAnon. I don't know if you guys have had any exposure to QAnon. Uh, don't give it your time. Uh, this group has this weird mix of like Christian nationalism. And they predicted that on, on March 4th that Biden would be thrown out of the White House, that he'd be arrested, and that Donald Trump would be, you know, rightfully in their perspective, returned to the presidency. And on March 4th, I remember, I remember reading this uh, on, on news houses where everybody was kind of looking forward. What's going to happen? And, and as you would expect, no, absolutely nothing happened. Right. And, and, then, and then QAnon followers, they, they revised the date to be March 20th, and then, you know, of course, another swing and a miss that follows. Right. Trying to predict the precise date of Jesus' return is like peddling with a cult like QAnon. It's not worth an iota of your time. 
The Bible makes it clear that we will not know when Jesus is coming back until that event begins. There's characteristic language that's used in the scriptures, both by Jesus and, and the, the writers of the New Testament. Descri using descriptive words like flash, thief, suddenly. Right? Things that are used to define the unpredictability of his return. Now, we may not know precisely when he's coming back, but there are some things that we can hold fast to, that we can say with certainty. First, that Jesus is coming back. Right? The biblical texts don't give us a when, but they're united in their approach of affirming that the second coming is, is assured. Secondly, I think it's fair for us to believe that we are currently living, I'm going to put this in quotes, currently living in the quote-unquote end times. Now, my claim here might not be what you think, right? Because the first, I say this a lot. The, some of you probably heard me say it before. The first disciples expected Jesus to return in their lifetimes. That was what they thought was going to happen initially. They believed and they wrote as if they were living in the end times. And so as a result, nearly 2,000 years later, we are in those same end times. It, it could happen today. It could happen a thousand years from now. But the idea of us being in the end times means that there is an imminent nature to it. Imminent kind of means that it could happen at any moment. That's what it means for us to be living in the end times, that we should be ready. And so I would say, yes, we are living in the end times. I'm not going to try to put a date on that, but we need to be prepared as if that were true. We also know that when Jesus returns, it will be for our good. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says this. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So that's another thing that the Bible affirms, that when Jesus comes back, when he returns, we will be transformed. We will be glorified. We will experience something similar in that physical resurrection that he did, just like he was. Lastly, this is not something we can know with certainty, but, but something that I, I, I want to speak a little bit to, that for whatever reason, Jesus tarries. He's waiting, right? He's chosen 2,000 years to, to you know, go by. He could let another 2,000 years for all that we know before he comes again. We don't know precisely why he is so long, at least long from our perspective, in returning. 2 Peter 3.9 might give us some insight. Um, it says this. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient to you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I think there might be something in this. God is not anxious or hasty about bringing about the end of days. I believe that perhaps... He is slow in returning to provide the opportunity for more and more to come to faith, to come to repentance and faith, because that's what God desires. God doesn't desire to come back and bring, bring the hammer down on folks full of judgment. He comes back wanting to be welcomed by people who have come to him in repentance and faith. What's important in this delay is that we not allow it to lull us into a false sense of security. He is coming back, and we would do well to remember that. Now, before we go on, I, I had intended initially, when I was putting this together, to take a brief detour here. 
because we don't talk about the return of Jesus that often, and I think it, it's one of the things that is, there's a lot of what I call pop theology out there. A lot of different people who have these viewpoints of uh, theology about the end time, so, some of which is based upon scripture, and some of it's just, you know, you read the Left Behind series, and so it's like, this is how it's going to happen uh, by, by Jenkins and LaHaye. And, and, and so I, I wanted to take some time to talk through the three slash four um, briefly. I don't know how I do that briefly, which is why I'm going to table it. But the different approaches that the church has had over the, the millennium, or over the centuries, I'll say, about the millennium and the kind of the timing of that. So I'm not going to do that right now, because uh, I think that would be a distraction and too long of an aside. But, you know, I was looking at the preaching schedule, and I think late August there's going to be some space. And so I'm going to circle back. And so if that's something that you're interested in, I, w- I would encourage you to uh, participate in that one, because it's, um, it, it's going to be... Uh, It'll be kind of like the sermon we had two weeks ago with the Jesus descending to the dead, you know, kind of exploring. We don't have certainty, but what does the Bible say? And what might there be a couple of uh, um, the traditions, the different theological traditions have to offer their strengths and weaknesses? So there you go. That's, that's my aside. <clears throat> so the, the, creed, the creed continues here, affirming the themes um, of the Bible that, that when Jesus returns, so he's going to return, and he returns with a purpose, right? He is coming back to be a judge, judgment is pending. It's looming. It, but for us, it's something to look forward to. Right? Not necessarily something that we experience right now in the here and now. When I first got really serious about my faith in, in high school, I, I, was, I was very legalistic. I've told a number of stories about that in the past. Right? I had read the Bible. Uh, I read it cover to cover in high school. Um, and uh, I remember my science class, uh, my chemistry class, I had my, I had my Bible wrapped in like a giant we didn't have giant eagle. We just had giant, a uh, giant plastic bag, you know, so it wouldn't get wet and dirty. And um, I just pulled that out in the back of the class in chemistry. And years later, I went back to my chemistry teacher, and I was like, "How come you didn't like say anything about like I'm clearly not paying attention to your class. I'm just reading the scriptures." And the chemistry came very naturally to me. He's like, "You were doing fine." And he, he, he was a believer. He said, "What you were reading in that book was better than anything I was teaching you anyway." I was like, "All right, touche." Anyway, uh, you know, I read the Bible, and and you know, I was like. It, this is clear, right? It's open shut. This is how God wants us to live. It was clear to me, right, how God wanted humanity to act. And so it was, it was disorienting to me at, from times when I would encounter others who just didn't want anything to do with God. They wanted to live their lives however they saw fit. And so as a result, I, I was acutely aware of the places where people didn't live up to God's standard, that there, and I didn't, but I didn't see it because I was, I was Pharisee and blind to that, um, but that there was trouble that followed. It was kind of like that proverb from Hosea. He says, for they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. They're doing this stuff and they wonder why kind of life is falling apart around them. In my youthful faith, I was confused as to why God was allowing evil to perpetuate and seemingly ignore it. And this was a stumbling block for me in my mind, because like I said, it was clear what God desired, it was evident that people weren't living that way, and God wasn't doing anything about it. So there was a disconnect for me. In fact, to add insult to injury, oftentimes people that I saw living these very overt, disobedient lives appeared to be flourishing. I, I talk about soccer. I, I love playing soccer. It was just, I loved playing it. But I, I, in high school, I was a mediocre player at best. Like I spent a lot of time riding the pine on the bench. And it was one of those things where, you know, the, the majority of the varsity team was out having keggers every weekend, 
was smoking marijuana, and here I am, this kid who's not participating in any of this stuff, and they've got this natural talent, and I don't. I was bitter. I was like, God, why are you allowing this to happen? It seems so unfair to me. And as I struggled with this disconnect of of God apparently overlooking the sin in, in this life, what I realized later is that I needed to better develop a theology of the end times, a theology of Christ's return and his judgment. And there's a passage that I remember reading, and it was like a, a, a message or a word of hope for me. It came from Matthew 13, 24 to 30. And Jesus told this parable. He said, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Right? And you know, you plant seeds. You don't, you, you, they have no idea that there have been weeds that have been planted there because it's all underground. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. And the servants of the master's house came to him and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then are there all these weeds? The master said, an enemy has done this. And the, the, the question the servants asked, this, this was basically what my question to God was then do you want us to go and gather them? Like, God, why haven't you gone and taken care of that evil in the world? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, right, read the end of days. I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bundle them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat and put it in my barn. And so for me, I finally had an answer to my predicament, right? God's purposes in the here and now were not set to, like, judge everything, keep everything straight in the moment by moment. Frankly, again, in my youthful ignorance, how could any of, I, I didn't see that how could any of us stand? How could any of us live? Because we're all, we're all broken. E- even in following Jesus, we, we still have a proclivity to, to, to sin, to do, you know, Paul himself said it, I, I do what I'm not supposed to do, and I don't do what I ought to do. But what I was realizing is that there was a future judgment that was to come. When you're young and you're aware of these activities in your world, it's easy to think like, God, if you would just remove them, then life would be better for everyone. But this parable shows how interconnected we are in life as people, right? Just Just removing one person, let's say you could just pick one person because of the evil in their heart or what they've sowed in their lifestyles. It's got a domino effect produces a a lot of undesirable consequences towards others. But Jesus is the righteous judge who will sort out everything in the appropriate categories at the appropriate time. In the words of the parable, when the harvest comes, Christ Christ gives us hope and he comes for us when we die. But the Bible teaches that there is another more public judgment that is yet to come. As we consider this judgment, one characteristic that we need to hold on to is the the righteousness and the fairness of Jesus Christ. God doesn't show favoritism. He's impartial. He's not able to be bribed, right? Those who are raised to life and those who perish are both given what is fair, no one on the other side of eternity will be able to go to God and say, well, you know, like, you know, you were kind of unkind to so-and-so. Right? As an extension of our faith and trusting in the goodness of God, we ought to trust the judgment that Jesus makes. 
Now, there's much diversity in Christian theology in terms of what form that will take. I've said before that I think pop culture has kind of hijacked our notion of heaven. But there's consensus in the scriptures, and I think most churches teach that when Christ comes back, those who are found, who are judged and found to have made the cut, experience some kind of physical resurrection and dwell in a final resting place. So it is this, this odd fusion of heaven and earth combined. There's also clarity that we make the cut not by our works, but because we've trusted in the righteousness of Jesus to bridge that gap for us. That's heaven. I think there's, there's greater consensus in, among Christianity about, about that perspective. As to what happens to those who are found wanting, there's a different perspective. There are many different perspectives. In general, the, the prevailing perspective is that those individuals go to hell, a place of torment, described by Jesus as he uses words like fire, a place of fire and burning and weeping and gnashing of teeth, clearly not a place that you or I would want to go. But I know that as we think about this doctrine or theology of hell, there are a lot of people who experience some dissonance about it. I hear things like, how could a good and loving God ever send someone to hell, i.e. a place to be tortured? I think this comes back to trusting in the fairness and the goodness of God in this process. I mean, personally, I, I, I have found, uh, I've, I've been fascinated by C.S. Lewis's perspective of hell in his novel, The Great Divorce. We read it as a church about four or five years ago. And really what his picture of hell in that book is, it's a, it's a novel, it's, it's not Christian theology, but as he often does in his writing, there is um, just some very insightful ideas that he has. And he, he provides a space where hell is a place of rebellion against God, where God finally gives those people in rebellion against him what they want, to be left alone from him. And so as a result, it's the absence of God in their midst. I mean, and because God is absent, it means that all goodness has been bled out of that place too. But even in saying that, I want to acknowledge that there are many evangelicals who deviate from traditional orthodoxy, kind of what has been taught over the last several couple thousand years. John Stott, I don't know if, if that name rings a bell for any of you, he passed away a few years ago, but he was a champion of the gospel in England, in the Church of England, right? gospel-centered living and teaching. But he, one of his kind of less popular opinions was he was an annihilationist. Right? And his perspective is that those who didn't want to deal with God in life, God wasn't going to force himself upon them in death. And in his mercy, not just their physical bodies, but their eternal souls or spirits would be disintegrated. They would cease to exist. That's what Stott believed and taught. Now, I don't personally hold to that perspective, but I, I think it's, I want to point it out because it's impossible for us to know with precision exactly what the result of that judgment is going to look like. We, we can take stabs at it, right? We can, we can try to piece, kind of like we did looking at Sheol and where Jesus went on Holy Saturday. We can try to piece it together based on what the Bible says. But I think it's important to hold that loosely because I, I don't know about you, but I, I can't have the, the arrogance or the hubris that I'm, I'm 100% certain um, about that because I don't think the Bible, it's not open and shut. But to restate myself from a moment ago, when we stand in that place face to face with our Savior, none of us will bat an eye at God to say you're being unkind or you're being unfair. Before we get to the application, the last, um, applica the, the last component of the creed is that Jesus will judge the living and the dead. And older versions of the creed state that Jesus would come to judge, as I said this earlier, the quick and the dead. 
remember growing up at my Presbyterian church and being like, I, like, I'll say this every week, but I have no idea what that means. Like, does it mean that Jesus is coming for the flash? You know, like, the quick moving, and that, that's not what it means. Um, but qu- quick is an old English term, which means living. I, um, for instance, it was used for uh, when, when a woman was pregnant, and you could finally feel the, the, the movement of the fetus, the baby inside. It, the baby was described as quickening. You know, I, I remember actually where this clicked for me, even though it's not quite the same route, but where it clicked for me is when uh, Sarah and I moved to Pittsburgh here 14, 15 years ago, we got dogs. Uh, and one of the, the unfortunate things you have to do when you have dogs is clip their toenails. Uh, and, uh, but you don't clip the whole toenail because there's something that, there's a blood vessel in the dog's nail that if you clip a little too far back, it'll bleed. It's a little fleshy part. Well, it's called the quick. That, that's what that piece is called. And so this idea of quick is a word that is synonymous with life, right? The blood flow of, of the dog or the quickening, the movement of the baby. And so the passage, what, what the, the, the creed means here is that Jesus, when Jesus comes back, he is going to come to judge those who are presently alive, who have life within them, as well as those who have died, who have perished. Now, I'm not going to read it because it's a long passage, but we're definitely going to get there in August when we highlight it, um, the, the different views of the millennium. But the, the chief place that talks about this is the Revelation chapters 20 and 21. And so if you want to do some reading on your own, some independent research, uh, feel free to jot that down, and, and that'd be a great place for you to start. So for the rest of our time, let's, let's look into how a right understanding of the return and judgment of Jesus can yield some transformation in our lives. What do we need to do differently about how we live? And so I have two pieces of of information, two pieces of application, one that's a little bit more abstract and one that I want to try to drill down a little bit and make a bit more concrete. The primary thing that the Bible teaches, the primary element that we need to respond to, as I already highlighted when I read that passage out of uh, Mark, is that we must be ready for Jesus' return. Are we prepared? He said himself, Jesus, in Matthew 24, 44, therefore you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And then just a few verses later, he tells this parable. And this parable, used to, it used to confuse the heck out of me when I was young in my faith. I was like, what does this even mean? It's typically called the parable of the virgins. It's found um, a few verses later, Matthew 25, 1 to 13. I'm going to read it for you. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. For the foolish took their lamps with no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. The bridegroom was delayed, and they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come and meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins, the foolish ones, came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Then he says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. It seemed like such an odd story to tell. I had trouble finding what that nugget of truth is. And my problem was I was trying to read it as an allegory. 
not a parable. An allegory is, is, is where like each element specifically represents something in the story. Like, what is this oil? Right? That's what I would try to figure out. What is this oil that I need that I just need to make sure that I have in good supply? Right? Whatever that is. But the purpose of Jesus is to, to use this parable. Right? This, the, excuse me. The purpose of the parable is Jesus is using this example, this culturally relevant example of a marriage a wedding celebration, which their wedding celebrations looked very different than ours do in the 21st century, to illustrate one point. Be ready. Or in the words of those of you who might have been Boy Scouts, I don't know if Girl Scouts had this slogan as well, be prepared. Even in the story, notice they all fell asleep. The issue wasn't that they fell asleep, but that when Jesus came back, they were ready for him. They had come prepared. Don't get lulled into a false sense of security. They're like, I'll have time to go get my oil. Again, whatever that oil is. It also shows that what we have can't be shared with... I preached a whole sermon on this uh, several years ago. I, I, I need to not divert there. We're going to be here all day. The, the purpose is we need to be prepared. There are things like skepticism that we deal with. I talked last week a little bit about deconstructionism. There are many things that can derail our faith in Christ's return. I know there are times that we might experience society going to hell in a handbasket and we despair and we lose heart. Right? Like, Jesus, you're never going to come back and fix this. Almost kind of like fatalistic. Just dealing with this is what I'm going to have to deal with. It's going to be broken forever. Sometimes when things are darkest, it's hard to, to hope for the light. But Jesus and the other New Testament writers spoke frequently about the nearness, about the expectation of his return. That we should not grow weary and tired from waiting, and we should be ready. When I was preparing this, I read a quote from J.I. Packer, um, and man, it, it was like a shot to the gut. This is kind of looking at it from a different perspective. He said, we think less and less about the better things that Christ will bring us at his reappearance because our thoughts are increasingly absorbed by the good things we enjoy here. We're less focused on the goodness of Jesus' return because we're kind of satisfied with what we're dealing with right now. Oof. At times we get lulled into a false sense of security, not because Jesus seems like he's taking his good old time to come back, but more so because we get a little too enamored with the world. Let me tell you, we live in an age of comfort we're blessed to live in this the 21st century that we live in, right? We, we don't just have amenities like, you know, running water, sewage system, right? Like, we don't, we don't have to go out back in a hole to take care of our business anymore. But we have the world, the internet, the entertainment in those supercomputers that we keep in our pockets that just so happen to be able to make phone calls as well. Right? We live a life of luxury compared to the generations before us. This spring, for instance, it seemed to be a little unseasonably warm and humid last week. No problem. Flick on that climate-controlled air conditioning. In fact, I was thinking about it, how last week it was hot and humid, and we had the wall air conditioning units on. And this morning it was a little chilly, so I, I turned the heat on. One week to the other, and we're just, you know, whatever. We can manage. Are we living in such posh and contented lives that we even look forward to the time of Jesus? I was talking with my, a friend of mine a, a few months ago, and he was commenting about how sometimes it, there can be, not always, but superficially, can be a generational gap 
in this look, you know, desire, looking forward to the return of Jesus. Right? Because he was saying, when you, when you get older and your, your body starts to break down, your memory begins to go, you're not living the same life that you were living in your 20s and 30s. You, you've, seen, you've seen the world, and may, maybe you've seen the world, but you long for the day that you can walk up the stairs without getting winded. You can get out of bed in the morning without pain. You can be reunited with a spouse that passed into eternity before you. But when we're younger, and when we're in our prime, the world seems to be our oyster in front of us. And we start to think like, you know, I want Jesus to come back, but may, maybe it'd be nice if he just held off until I got married or until I saw the Grand Canyon or until I made a name for myself, right? whatever it might be. We, like we, we kind of want Jesus to just stall a little bit longer because we got FOMO, right? We're fear of missing out on something that some, somehow we're going to lack, right? If we don't have this experience, we're going to lack in the kingdom if Jesus comes back before we've accomplished it. So what does this look like for us practically? Right, should, you, should, you drink, should you join the ranks of, of some cults in the past, right? Sell everything that you have, go on to the Shenley Overlook and just kind of wait for Jesus to come back? meant to be a sarcastic rhetorical question if you are confused about the answer the answer is absolutely not that is not what you should be doing don't hear me saying that this morning i think we need to hold in this process two items in tension we need to plan for our lives ahead god has entrusted us to be stewards of this world and the things in it so we need to be responsible plan for the years ahead invest in a 401k go to college buy a home make a budget whatever it might be we don't know when Jesus is returning, so we should be preparing for the long haul. But at the same time, in the words of Bishop Thomas Ken's hymn, he says, Redeem thy misspent time that's past. Live this day as if it were thy last. Plan for years, but live each day as if it were our last. Prepare for the imminent return of our righteous judge, Jesus Christ. Be prepared. This is like the, the, the story of the, of the virgins. Be wise. Make sure you have those things, whatever they are that you need in Jesus. If I had to guess, if it was an allegory, I'd have to guess that faith is that component that we must hold to. But I know a lot of people who have faith in Jesus, but have completely neglected to prepare for his coming back. Sometimes that lets us, you know, we, we, like I said, we get a little too enamored with the world. So we drill down and be like, all right, I need to write this book, read this book, work this job. As if it's an indefinite thing that we need to do, right? That we just kind of toil under the sun and then die. There's, there is a chance, a likelihood, every, our generation and every generation afterwards, that Jesus is going to interrupt that and come back. Will we be prepared? Maybe to add kind of just another element to that. Will we be prepared that if Jesus were to come back within the next month, those that we care about, would they be ready? Maybe that's another call on our lives, not just getting our lives in order, but finding ways to communicate the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that those we care about can have their lives in order too. Because there's going to be a point in time that it's too late. And we're going to wish, perhaps wish that we had. Anyway, let me close in prayer and then we'll, we'll wrap up.
Lord, so often this is what the church from a generation or two ago called our blessed assurance. Blessed assurance knowing with joy that you are coming back, that you are coming back soon. Think about the words of John. The, the, the second to last verse in the Bible. Come, Lord Jesus. Anxiously awaiting your return. And Lord, we, we can't help but recognize that he was living in a time of fierce persecution. He was exiled, perhaps even blinded. You coming back would have been a respite to the difficulty of his life. Wake us up, Lord, that if we are so comfortable that we've fallen asleep in that comfort, may we not just see your coming back as, a, as an unfortunate intrusion to our life, but that we would have a hope that is big enough to see how grand and good that will be when it comes. Give us faith to see that, that we, we might walk in the newness of life now, and an expectation of that newness of life that is to come. We pray this in Jesus' name.